Um, I suppose, Sadie, if we'd have been on top of things there, we could have had uh, the My Hometown song playing in the background. Is that a Mellencamp song? My hometown, my hometown. All right. Huh? Is that Simon and Garfunkel? No. I thought it was Mellencamp. Anyway. Small town. That's small town. I'm thinking of my hometown. Simon, okay. Anyway. Anyway. I was born in a small town. That was, that was Mellencamp. All right. But who sang my hometown, my home? Is that Simon and Garfunkel? All right. Bruce Springsteen. All right. <laughs> okay. Truly pursued on songs. No, no. No. Anyway, that's what I was thinking of when we were doing that. My hometown, my hometown. Whoever sings it. Is it Springsteen? Well, Pink Floyd. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, hey, uh, welcome again here this morning. And uh, I'll pray. And then we're going to look in God's word this morning. God, we believe, uh, we believe in your Holy Spirit, and by saying that, we, that, what we're saying is we believe there's a reality to the world that we can't see, that we sometimes wonder about, but we believe is real, and as sometimes the disciples said, help us in our unbelief, help us to understand and hear and see, so would your Holy Spirit speak to us, and would you give us ears to hear, would you show us things, would you give us eyes to see, so we can understand how you want us to grow to become the kind of people you designed us to be, full of the life and the power that comes from you alone. And we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Hey, uh, real quick, I w- I'm going to highlight one thing on the purple sheet. Um, and it's, uh, we don't, you know, we're not a liturgical church. Some of you don't even know what that means, and that's okay. But we don't necessarily celebrate Lent, but Lent is kind of a traditional time in the church here where people prepare for Easter. So if you, if you grew up Catholic or Episcopal or Lutheran or other, some of that you would have talked about Lent. It's the 40 days before Easter. Um, so one of the things uh, my wife is doing, actually, is, encourage, is asking people to join her in a challenge of reading through the Gospels during the month of Lent. And then for five weeks on Monday, is that right, Kath? On Monday, if you want to join her at our house, there's going to be a Monday afternoon group and a Monday night group, and you can go to either, or, or both. Maybe not both. We don't want to see you twice in one day in our house, but anyway. And just talk about what are you learning about Jesus? What are you learning from the Gospels? So there's information in the purple sheet. It doesn't start tomorrow. It will start the following Monday. So if you're interested, it's not just for women. Men are welcome to come, too. So there's going to be, a, I think, Monday afternoon, like at 1.15, and then Monday nights at 7.15. Um, so if you if you would be committed to reading through the Gospels, and there's a reading plan that she has a web link for, you read through, and then basically when you come together, it's simply just say, what are you learning about Jesus? What are you learning? And it's five weeks, five Monday nights, not like a heavy commitment, but anybody's welcome to come and just to see what you're learning together and encourage one another. So, okay, um, here's the word for the day. The word for the day is distortion. Go to the next slide. Whose face is this? Okay, Peyton Manning, I distorted it. You got it anyway. Next one, don't say it out loud, though. Next one, who's this? I really distorted this. Don't say it, don't say it, don't say it. Everybody know? Who doesn't know? It is Tom Cruise. All right, next one. This is the hard one, I think, maybe. Don't say it, don't say it, don't say it. Anyway, who, who knows? Who thinks they know? I've got a few that know. This is a little harder. It's... Tom Brady. All right. He needs to be distorted, doesn't he? Yeah, that's right. Okay. All right. Next one. Next one. This is a tough one. Don't say out loud. Don't say. Don't say. Don't say. 
Who doesn't know on this one? Okay, the next slide might give you a clue. Okay, now what? Okay, next one. Yeah, okay. So I had fun actually distorting these pictures, by the way, especially Tom Brady. But anyway. Um, distorting pictures, to some degree, you have, it distorts features that you can't, not, sometimes you don't recognize them, you don't know. I'm, I'm, of the strong conviction that a lot of times we've distorted our view of who Jesus is. We have a distorted view of Jesus because either what the culture tells us or what we've heard that he said, but we don't know that he said it. That's part of the reason why we've encouraged people to pick a gospel to read through or my wife's encouraged people to read through the gospels because we want everybody here to have a clear picture of who Jesus is, who he said he was, what he said he came to do. Because we are Christians, we are a church of Christians, which means Jesus Christ is central to what we do. We're not a, we're not a moral religion, we're not simply a worldview religion or whatever. We are a religion, of, we believe in supernatural realities centered in this God-man that lived 2,000 years ago, who we believe rose from the dead, named Jesus. So if you have a distorted view, if, if we have an inaccurate or somewhat distorted view of Jesus then your whole understanding of how to live out this life following Jesus as a Christian will be also be distorted. So it's important then that we always, always, always come back to get a clear picture of who is Jesus, what did he say, what did he say he came to do, and sometimes for those of us, like me, who've maybe been in church for years, sometimes you just need to reread the Gospels again and maybe get a fresh picture and maybe you see things that you didn't notice before, because sometimes I think we read things through the Gospels and we kind of get so used to hearing it, it's kind of like Charlie Brown's teacher, wah, 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 and you forget to look and see who Jesus really was. So what we, we started last week a series called Face to Face with Jesus, and we're going to look at different interactions people had with Jesus in face-to-face conversations from the Gospels. Um, if you were here last week, um, I started a passage, and I'm going to start on today, and then I'll, we'll go from there. So let's just go into the passage where we started last week. If you weren't here last week, um, it was the most interesting sermon I never preached. But uh, if you were here, you know what I'm talking about. So anyway, so this first one we start with, and actually we're going to kind of go to another one too, but we're going to talk about Jesus' first interaction with some of his first disciples. In this case, it was John Andrew, Peter, and actually later in this passage is Nathaniel. Um, Andrew and Peter were brothers. This is Peter, like the Saint Peter. So let's just start off with this passage where we started last week, and then we'll go from there, all right? So John the Baptist, this John that's talking about here is John the Baptist. There was John the Apostle, there's John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the first cousin of Jesus, or some degree of a cousin of Jesus, who was prophetic, lived in the wilderness, we're told, with kind of burlaps, you know, was, was kind of an outdoors, weird kind of prophet, but people followed him because he was telling them about the Messiah that was to come. So in those days, people would gather around somebody as their teacher, and at this point, he had disciples, so John the Baptist had disciples. He had followers, people that were kind of part of his small group, right? So the following day, John was again standing with two of his disciples, and the two of his disciples we know were actually the Apostle John and Andrew. So these guys probably in their late teens, early 20s. 
As Jesus walked by, John looked at him and declared, Look, there is the Lamb of God. When John's two disciples heard this, they followed Jesus. So they, they knew John the Baptist enough that the Lamb of God was a reference to Old Testament passages. They knew he was saying, That's the Messiah. And for years, for centuries, the Jewish people have been waiting for a Messiah. And in a nutshell, what they were expecting was someone to come to set them free from the dominance of Rome and make the world right again. So in their viewpoint, the Messiah's role was to get rid of all these external obstacles to the life we've always wanted. Probably not unlike some of our views of how we want to see Jesus do or show up in our lives. We want him to remove the external obstacles that keep us from living the life we think we've always wanted. That was no different in those days. So, so they follow him. These two guys, you know, Jesus is walking on the road, they follow him. Then go on. Follow, uh, Jesus looked around and saw them following. What do you want? So they apparently didn't say anything. They just started following him. What do you want? He asked them. They replied, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Which, again, was one of those awkward questions. They didn't know what else to say. Where are you staying? I mean, we don't know. They're just kind of following. His response, though, which shows up other times in the gospel, is come and see. It's about 4 o'clock in the afternoon when they went with him to the place where he was staying and remained with him the rest of the day. Now, Jesus was not saying, come and see where I'm staying. I've got a really cool room. I've got, nice, you know, I've got a nice rug and I've got some new curtains. He wasn't saying that, and they knew he wasn't saying that. What he was saying was, it was a common thing that they would, rabbis would say to potential disciples, come and watch what I'm doing. Come and see what I'm doing. Come and listen to what I'm saying, and decide for yourself if you want, if you want to follow me. So come and see. Come and see. That was the invitation of Jesus. Come and see. So now what I want to do is think, okay, what, what did these guys see? I mean, it wasn't just that evening. I'm sure that evening they had a conversation and they probably were intrigued by the conversation. But the next couple chapters of John and other Gospels unfold with some different events that these guys obviously saw that was giving them some picture of what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. Because in those days you literally attached yourself to a teacher, which meant you don't have five teachers, you attach yourself to one teacher. So the, Jesus says, come and see. So he's saying, come and Check it out. See what I'm doing. See what I'm saying. See what I, watch what I'm doing. So these three, uh, Andrew, Peter, let's just say Andrew and John were in this one. I'm going to focus just on Andrew. So I want you to think about just Andrew for right now. Jesus says, come and see. So now let's skip ahead. Go to the next slide here. Because the next chapter, which we don't know how long after this, but probably not too long afterwards, there was an event that took place in Jerusalem. Andrew and the others would have been with Jesus. This is one of those things that they came and saw. At this point, they were attached enough to Jesus that they traveled with him for the Passover, which was the annual religious festival they would do to celebrate their, the Jewish freedom from ex the Exodus hundreds of years ago. Jesus and these other disciples initially lived up in Galilee, which was about 70, 65 miles from Jerusalem. So Think about walking from here to a little beyond Terre Haute or here to Carmel. That's the distance they had to walk together with Jesus to get to the Passover festival in Jerusalem because they all had to go there. You had to celebrate the festival in Jerusalem. All right, so Andrew, Peter, John, Nathaniel, and others were with Jesus, his entourage. 
They had already kind of known enough about Jesus. They were intrigued by who he was and wondering, is he the one, is he the Messiah? Is he the one that's going to kick the Romans out of here? Is he going to make our lives what we've always wanted to be by removing all the obstacles to what we think is the life we've always wanted? So go to the next slide here, and I'm just going to give you a, a, a little frame on this, and I'm just going to read the passage. I want you just to kind of visualize what's happening. This is what the temple we think might have looked like in the days of Jesus. A large, uh, you know, the temple courts, those outside areas there where all the, in, the important kind of intense sacrifices took place in the building right in the center that only the priests were allowed in. But this outside area was kind of a courtyard. And if you were a Jewish person and you had to go to the Passover every year for this festival, as part of the celebration, you offered a sacrifice, whether it was an animal, a dove, a lamb, or whatever. And you had to pay some kind of a temple tax, but you had to pay it in the uh, money units that Jerusalem had. So if you were a Jew and you came from another town or another area, you may not have wanted to be hauling a lamb with you or a dove, and you didn't necessarily have the, the currency of Jerusalem. So when you got there, you had to you know, exchange your money to get the right kind of currency so you could pay the temple tax, and that was a good thing to do that. Or, and you had to go figure out, you had to go buy a lamb or a dove because you had to go through the proper sacrifices. So those were things they were expected to do, and that was normal and that was good. What had happened, though, is somehow that it turned into a business where people were kind of, not kind of, they were charging higher than the exchange rate on the money, making money off the travelers who had to come into town and exchange currency, and they were charging higher than what they should have been for a dove or a lamb or whatever the sacrifice was. So they were doing things that initially had a good intention behind it. We're trying to help the foreign travelers or the out-of-town people when they come. We want to help make this an easier way to celebrate Passover. What happened, though, it had turned into, oh, in the meantime, maybe we could make a little money. And not only were they making money, it was becoming kind of a business, kind of almost extortion, because you had to have the Jewish, the Jerusalem money. You had to have animals to sacrifice. It, it became, then they kind of moved into the courtyard area, and it was kind of a carnival, bizarre kind of atmosphere. Not what it was intended to be. Now, let me stop for a second. Most idolatries in your life or my life because this, this was some kind of an idol, start off with really good intentions, right? Somebody probably had the idea, you know what? We should, we should have a currency exchange so when people come from out of town, we can help them out so they can worship God with their money and more, you know, it's more efficient, it's going to help them out. They don't have to, hey, great idea. It was a good idea. Hey, we gotta, somebody ought to have a place where they can buy their livestock so they can sacrifice it. That would relieve the burden of them having to haul this stuff down from Galilee or wherever they're coming from. Yeah, good idea. Good idea. Good intentions. We want to help these people. How many times do we our own idolatry start off with a good intention? Hey, I'm going I'm to help out with this situation. Or, you know what, I think I'll do this with my money because I want to help. And then sometimes good intentions end up becoming, turned into something it wasn't initially to be. And it probably happened gradually over time where all of a sudden what's happening there is something, it's kind of like the frog in the kettle. It's like it wasn't intended to be that way, but now it's kind of where it's not supposed to be at all. Kind of people are getting extorted and religions turned into a business. 
So Jesus shows up that day at the temple. So I'm going to leave this slide up here because I want you to kind of envision this. He shows up that day at the temple seeing all this, and it's not like Jesus didn't know this was happening. He was, you know, in his 30s by now. He had been there before. He had probably seen the evolution of this over time becoming a religious business. And any time Christianity or spiritual life becomes religious business, it's not a good thing because what happens is it becomes more about exploiting people and things and less about people having hearts and lives that are given up to God. So Jesus wasn't unfamiliar with this, and we don't know if he had intentions to do what he was going to do when he got there. But this is one of those face-to-face interactions with Jesus that I think breaks apart some of the distortion that we have today in our culture. And the distortion is that we often, we often hear that Jesus was just, he was so full of love, which he was, and we make him out to be the ultimate nice guy. All right? He was so tolerant. He was not, I mean, those, some of those things are true, but let's read the passage here. All right? So it was nearly time, for, this is John chapter 2. I'm reading from 13 to 22, so I'm just going to read you, follow along, kind of a picture what's happening in that environment there. It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration, so Jesus went to Jerusalem. In the temple area, he saw merchants selling cattle, sheep, and dove for sacrifices. He also saw dealers at tables exchanging foreign money, and I explained why they have to do that. Jesus made a whip from some ropes and chased them all out of the temple. It's like, whoa. Jesus, Jesus, meek and mild, that's not him. I mean, if he made a whip, he had to take time to find the stuff to make it with. He didn't come with one. So this wasn't just an outburst of out-of-control anger. He, he thought about what he was doing. He was never out of control in the sense that we think out of control. He drove out the sheep and cattle. He scattered the money changers' coins over the floor and turned over their tables. So chaotic, turbulent. I mean, again, now you're Andrew and you're watching this. You're like, whoa. You're probably whispering to your brother Peter, shouldn't he tone it down a little bit? He's kind of going a little bit postal before the post office existed, right? What's going on here? What's he doing? I'm sure the disciples were confused a bit. Then going over to the people who sold the doves, he told them, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. Then the disciples remembered this prophecy from the scripture, which is from Psalm 69, passion for God's house will consume me. Because they saw a passion in Jesus. They saw an intention, a fierce intention about Jesus to make sure that people's access to worship God in the way God intended was not obstructed, and it was being obstructed by religion. But the Jewish leaders demanded, because they were behind this, they were profiting from this themselves, it was kind of keeping them in their posh positions. They demanded, what are you doing? If God gave you authority to do this, show us a miraculous sign to prove it. All right, Jesus replied, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. What? They exclaimed, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you can rebuild it in three days? But when Jesus said this temple, he meant his own body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered he had said this, and they believed both the scriptures and what Jesus had said. So here's the face-to-face conversation that happens in this situation. Go to the next slide here. I've summarized it. Jesus comes into the temple 
with quite a bit of passion, quite a bit of energy, quite a bit of fierce intention about him, nobody would say he's nice in this situation. Now, did he ever cease to be full of the Spirit? No, but niceness is not an attribute of God. Niceness is usually an attribute of those of us who are trying to figure out how we fit in with people around us, so we do the nice things and don't always say the right things. So he says, get these things out of here, the Jewish leaders. What are you doing? Who gave you authority to do this? Stop messing with our religious world. Jesus says, okay, destroy this temple, and in three days we'll raise it up. And they just respond, what? In other words, what right do you have, Jesus, to come here and mess up with what we have this really good system figured out? It's been working for us for years. And frankly, yeah, we profit a little bit off it, but is that big of a deal, Jesus? Why not just leave it alone? Now, let me stop here for a second, too, and say this. Often when we read Scripture, and I, I'm guilty of this, too, we always read ourselves into the story on the, on the good guy side. So when we read this story, we tend to think we would be with the disciples kind of cheering Jesus on. The reality is, some of us, many of us, may have been the ones selling the things. Some of us may have been the religious leaders with the nice big hats on. All right? Some of us may have been selling the sheep and the goats, because they thought they were doing good religious things. It had just got twisted slowly over time to what with a good intention becomes an idol. So sometimes it's good to read into the story, read yourself into the story on those who had hearts that weren't fully devoted to God in the way. So don't always read yourself in as part of the good guys. Sometimes the rest of those people who were selling and buying and selling and the fair... Some of them had really good intentions initially. They had just gone awry. They had kind of let a, a little bit of a change of direction, and they probably knew it wasn't really what was good and honoring to God, but now we'll let it go. We'll let it go. After all, we're helping these people. After all, we're helping these people from other towns come and worship God, so making a little money, so we'll let it go. So let's turn this conversation to the conversation that I wonder how much you and I have with Jesus. I know Jesus wants to have it with us, and that's this. Jesus kind of coming into the temple of our hearts, our lives, seeing, and by that I mean he knows how I think, he knows how I spend my money, he knows how I handle relationships, he knows how I handle conflict, he knows how I handle, if I'm honest with my words, he knows if I'm honest with my sexuality, he knows everything about me, he knows everything about you. And he walks in, and he starts, and he says, there's some, some things that don't belong here. Get them out of here. And of course, most of those things that we have in our hearts that don't belong there, whether it's about our attitudes, about money, about sex, about relationships, about our own issues, about our own pride, most of those things, we had really good intentions, and it just, we let it slide a little bit at a time, and I mean, what's the big deal? Come on. In the, my intentions are still good. And so Jesus says, get these things out of here. And I put the exclamation point on. There's no, there's no, there's no uh, punctuation in the Greek, in the New Testament. So it's usually added in when they think. And there's a good chance when Jesus was at the temple, he wasn't speaking, get these things out of here. Please leave. I mean, he, I'm sure there was passion about him. And exclamation points were quite appropriate for the translators to put in there. So it's quite appropriate for Jesus perhaps to come into my life or your life and say, get those things out of there. 
there's some things in your life that don't belong. And our first response, if you're honest, is, what are you doing, Jesus? Look at all those other things I do good. I mean, I still give money to the church. I still do this. I obey all the commandments. I love my wife. I treat my kids well. Um, you know, I change my toothbrush every six weeks, whatever. I do all these things right, but you're, come on, Jesus, you're pointing out this? Can I have that? Can I just have that for me? It's not, it's not hurting anybody. Yeah, I mean, I might be profiting off those people a little bit, and yeah, I may have twisted my words a little bit, and yeah, I am probably using my money more for me than for others, and I, and I understand there's probably ways you want me to be more generous, but I'm okay. I need the money right now, whatever it is. Or yeah, I know what you say about how we're supposed to express our sexuality and how I'm supposed to, and how that's reserved. But God, you, if you understood my situation, we have all these ways where we're basically say to Jesus, what are you doing? Who, who are you to tell me that I need to change those things in my life? Because I figured out it works for me. I mean, this temple system had worked for years, selling the money, giving to the animals, and they probably over time made more profit, more profit, more profit. And this is the Jesus we often don't see. And I'm not saying he's an angry Jesus. I'm not saying he's angry at you. He's quite passionate because he knows what you could be. He knows what I could be, and he sees an obstacle that's keeping you from being what he knows you could be. So it's not, he's not an angry, condemning, I'm looking for something wrong with you so I can slap you around kind of Jesus. That's not Jesus. That's a wrong view of Jesus. That's a distorted view of Jesus, too. But neither is he kind of Santa Claus Jesus where he's like, yeah, I can... That's good. That's okay. I, I, I wish you would change it, but I'm okay with that. He's, he's quite passionate about it. And again, this is one of those things he was telling these disciples, Andrew, Peter, hey, come and see. So they're watching Jesus kind of go wild here. And I mean wild in a really good, self-controlled kind of way. And they're starting to wonder, what in the world? Our, our view of the Messiah is different. We thought he was going to go after the Romans. He's going after the religious people. That's not what we thought he was going to do. It's kind of like, like you and me might think. We think Jesus should come and take care of our external issues that we think cause us all the lack of peace and joy in our lives. But Jesus comes to us, and he tries to deal with the issues we have inside of us that are the obstacles for peace and joy. And we get a little bit perturbed because we're like, Jesus, you, if you just kind of change this financial situation, if you could change this relational situation, if you could change this career situation for me, if those would all change, if you would just take care of those external things, I think I'd be quite happy, peaceful, and joyful. And Jesus is like, no, no, I'm, I'm coming here first. I need to deal with some attitudes you have. I need to deal with some, some deception you're doing. I need to deal with some immorality you're practicing that you don't think is a big deal. And Jesus comes in, and it's like, you know, you've you got to get him out of here. So go to, this, go to this next slide here, because here's what's it like to be face-to-face -face with this Jesus. You know, because there are times, and it seems like many times throughout even the Old Testament, God was challenging his people to get rid of idolatries in their lives. Not out of this heavy-handed Zeus-like God who was just trying to eliminate all op you know, opposition. It was because he knows those very things are the things that are keeping you and me from joy and peace at the depth of degree we've never known, but with what he said he can do. But we don't like that about God sometimes. But we, but we do, but we don't, but we do, but we don't. You know, there's a, one of my, there's a passage in, uh, this is, 
another illustration of this, but in the book of Nehemiah in the Old Testament. Um, this is actually, by the way, this picture is from a, a video called The Gospel of John. And any, any video or movie that tries to depict Jesus, nobody, actually get, nobody will ever get it completely like it was. But I like the way they play this scene because you just feel the chaos, but you also feel the passion of Jesus. And Jesus is not like some soft mamby-pamby with harp music in the background. It's kind of like brave harp music in the background. It's like wild and crazy. But you know it, but it feels right. So. But in the book of Nehemiah, in the Old Testament, there was a time where God's people also had kind of given in a little bit at a time to some wrong things and some idolatries. And one of them was they weren't supposed to uh, do business on the Sabbath, which was God's way of trying to preserve them peace and joy and not the busyness of hurriedness of life. But they started to kind of sell stuff on the Sabbath. And, and then also they had, God's design for them was if you need to marry somebody who has the same spiritual commitments you do. But the Jewish people started marrying people who were worshiping pagan gods. So here's what Nehemiah, here's the, this, I love this about Nehemiah, but I think it exhibits the same kind of spirit of Jesus. This is what we read in Nehemiah chapter 13. This has been hundreds of, hundreds of years before that. He says this, um, I commanded the gates of Jerusalem to be shut on darkness every Friday evening because he was trying to preserve the Sabbath and not to be open until the Sabbath ended. I sent some of my own servants to guard the gates so that no merchandise could be brought, brought in on the Sabbath day. The merchants and tradesmen with a variety of wares camped outside Jerusalem. So they'd go, they knew they couldn't come anymore, so they camped out waiting for a chance to kind of sell their wares. It says, but Nehemiah literally says, I spoke sharply to them. So he shouts down from the wall, what are you doing out here camping around the wall? If you do this again, I will arrest you. Well, the, the original language really says, if you do this again, I'm going to put my hands on you. I mean, Nehemiah's passion is like, stop trying to fudge on these kind of commands that God knows is going to lead you to peace. But then it gets better. About the same time, I realized that some of the men from Judah had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and, Ammon, and Moab, pagan countries. Furthermore, half their children spoke the language of those countries, and they could not speak the language. In other words, their children couldn't even read or speak Hebrew. They couldn't even read the Old Testament, the Jewish law. And that was egregious to Nehemiah because that's what God wanted of them. So I confronted them and called down curses on them. I beat some of them and pulled out their hair. Thank you for the laugh track there. So Nehemiah, who descri describes a very godly man, is so passionate. I beat some of them and pulled out their hair. I'm trying to picture that. I'd love to see that in a movie. But it's the same passion. I'm not, I'm, please, I'm not saying... Go find somebody who's sinning and beat them or anything. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is the passion that you see in the Old Testament, the passion that you see in Jesus for the purity of his people, you and me, no little fudge things, no little compromises, no, why can't Jesus just wink his eye at that? The passion of that shows how much Jesus knows what you can be. And that's part of Jesus that we often don't see clearly. It's a little distorted. We don't like to see that or we don't, because it doesn't fit our sense of Jesus kind of being this uh, kind, gentle, Santa Claus-like uncle who's there to help us when we need it, but please don't challenge me, Jesus. Um, go to the next slide here. 
at the end of the Gospel of John, because John's the one who recorded this event, he says, these things are written. So he's talking about all the things that he wrote in the Gospel of John, but this is one of them, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, so he is the Messiah, he is the anointed one, he is the one who's come to set us all free, but of course we know now he's talking about freedom of the heart, not necessarily freedom from external environment. The Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So whether it's the story of the tenderness of Jesus with the woman at the well or the, the healing miracles, or in this case, the passionate cleansing of the temple, these are all things we need to see clearly about Jesus because when we see those things and understand and respond to Jesus in that way, have a face-to-face relationship with that Jesus, then we have life. And life is not simply meaning eternal life after you die, but it's the kind of life right now that every single one of us hungers for, and that is a life of joy, of power, of peace, of forgiveness, regardless of the circumstances around you, because you can't change those. But God can change your hearts toward those things. So I don't know all of your stories. I know my story, and I know... Um, there's places in my heart where if I swing the doors open of the temple courts and let Jesus come in, he may very well come and look for some cords, not to beat me up, but to passionately challenge me to let go of those things that are keeping me from being the fully alive, awake, and free person he knows I can be. And my guess is that's true for some of you. And my guess is some of those things are not issues that you just started doing yesterday, They've been things that over time they've kind of evolved to take a form that you're just okay with, but if you really stopped and kind of examined that attitude or that habit you have or the whatever, you'd probably, if you really looked at it, you're like, yeah, I don't, I don't think that is something that's going to give me the life that Jesus wants from me. But it's kind of become evolved, it's, it's become part of you. Just like it had become part of the Jewish habit of Passover, nobody thought it was a big deal. Except Jesus, and I guess his opinion matters, right? So maybe there's something in your life, maybe there's some area in your own heart that Jesus has been trying to get your attention about, and I'm just going to challenge you, ask you, implore you, whatever word I can use, and the same to myself. Will you give him space and listen to what he's saying because his passion for you is more than you've ever imagined? And uh, you... One of the things I've been, if you were here last week, I actually started the sermon, I stopped halfway. I'm not even halfway, it was like 10% into the sermon. Because I just thought there was nothing, I didn't have anything to say, long story. But part of my hope for the next few weeks where we look at these face-to-face conversations with Jesus is, I want you to see Jesus face-to-face, because I want you to be able to interact with, pray for your friends and neighbors who don't know Jesus, who may have their false impressions of Jesus, because we want them to see Jesus face to face. And if you have a congregation of X number of people that we have here, if we would allow Jesus to do this first in us, where we would have, uh, we'd, we'd eliminate all those obstacles inside of us that are keeping him uh, from having free reign in our lives, I think evangelism just happens then naturally because the Spirit has complete control of every single one of us. So uh, I'm not saying we shouldn't intentionally try to look for ways to talk to people about Jesus, 
but I'm wondering, and I, my wondering is, I think, pretty accurate, to what degree some of those habits, idols, whatever we allow in our hearts, because we, life works for us. I like the way my life works. I don't want anything. Ch- I mean, last week, the phrase I used was the awkward interruptions of God. I don't want God to awkwardly interrupt me. I kind of want him just to kind of bless what I'm doing. And give, give me a few more things, please, but don't, don't, don't interrupt me. Don't, be, don't, don't shuffle my deck, God. I've, my deck works for me right now. I've figured it out. But that's not what, Jesus won't leave you alone, and I'm so glad he doesn't leave us alone. Doesn't leave you alone, won't leave me alone, because he loves us too much to leave us alone. Just like if you're, if you're a parent and you had a kid that was misbehaving, you love them too much to leave them alone. It's not because he's angry at you, it's just he loves you too much to leave you alone. So let me pray, close your eyes. <coughs> Excuse me. God, we, um, even from the song earlier where we sang, let go my soul and trust in him, mm, uh, perhaps the letting go is letting go of habits, even dreams, thoughts, desires, that we know really aren't from you, that we know are really keeping us from you, and uh, if those things we need to let go of, would you identify those to us? You, you, we don't, we, I, I don't believe you leave any of us in the dark. If we want to know where these habits have gone awry, where we're doing things in the temple courts we shouldn't, I think if any of us want to know that, you tell us. So would you, all, would you give us all the courage even to ask you? You know, God, search me, oh God, know our hearts. Try us and know if there's any kind of unsettled things in our spirits that are coming from places that shouldn't be you. Would you cleanse those things from us? Would you show us what those things are and let us with you take them out of the temple courts? So we know you have a passion for us. We love your passion for us. Thank you for never quitting on us. Thank you for not letting us be 70% of what we could be. Thank you for not letting us be 95% of what we could be. Thank you for not stopping till we are fully alive in the way that you know we can be. So don't stop with us. And uh, we're grateful that you don't. And we're grateful, um, and we want to see this face-to-face. We love your passion, Jesus. Thanks for talking to us in that kind of way. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. We uh, finish every week at Exodus with communion. And I don't mean finish like put a period on the end of a sentence because it's really more of the uh, kind of the, the apex of what we do because what we're, what we, when, we do, when we take communion and again you may come from all, all of us come from different rituals, different backgrounds whether, whether it's Catholic, Episcopal, Methodist, Baptist, whatever but the whole, the root issue is all the same Jesus said this is my body broken for you this is my blood shed for you he said this the night before he was betrayed and when he was saying, do this in remembrance of me, he's saying, remember all the promises I said. Remember what I said I could do in your lives. If you let me in you. Because he says, without me, you can do nothing. So when we do this, we're not simply taking bread and juice and, you know, there's nothing, there's nothing magical that goes on here. But it's also more than symbolic. I, think that, I believe there's something mystical that goes on because when we're letting these emblems of Jesus into us, we're basically giving him the right to go anywhere he wants to inside of us and find anything that needs to be purified and given life to. So uh, anyone's welcome. Perfection is not the standard of communion. Um, 
openness to the spirit of Jesus is. So if you're, there's, you don't need to be a member here. You don't need to be a regular attender here. If you're someone who has the spirit of God in you and wants more of the spirit of Jesus in you, you're welcome here. What I've said before, though, is if there's some way where you're intentionally resisting God, I'm doing this like a straight arm. If you're intentionally resisting God in some known area of sin in your life, it's for your own benefit not to take. And we don't try to figure out who's up and down and identify sinners or non-sinners. You may not take for some other reason. We don't know. But for your own benefit, um, don't take if, there, if there's some area you're resisting God. But for the rest of us, which would be all of us, um, this is the free provision of grace and mercy for all of us. So uh, the band's going to come up, and they're going to sing. Um, while we sing with them, there'll be somebody to the aisles offer you the bread. You tear off a piece. That's how we do it. They'll offer you the cup. And just how we do it here, just dip it in the cup. Most people eat it right away. If they've dipped out of the cup, some people take it back to their seat. It's up to you. Do whatever. So let me pray, and the band will come up, and we'll start to sing. Jesus, we're grateful that you uh, opened up what the Bible says is a new and living way which is that you opened a whole new way for us to relate to God. We don't have to appease you anymore. We don't have to offer doves or lambs or cattle. We don't have to pay a temple tax in order to win favor from you or stay in good standing with you. But you, by your sacrifice, Jesus, your death and your resurrection, um, you've been the final sacrifice for us. So we are grateful. And, and we do this out of gratitude that you've opened up this way for us to know God um, that is direct through what you do for us. So would you uh, bless this bread and this cup and in doing so would we listen to you and allow you and your spirit into our bodies, into our hearts. And we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.